Well, if you'd like to take up your Bibles again, we'll pick up the reading at chapter 11, verse 1. And it says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be the full of the Lord full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand, yet a second time, to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah. From the four corners of the earth, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will see that in that day... Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. 
For great in your, in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Well, we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, let me just remind you there will be question time at the end of the sermon. You have your order of service, um, if that's useful to you, or sermon outline. And then finally, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this insight into the events of um, Isaiah's contemporary history as we see how you are the Lord of all the earth and the whole earth belongs to you. We pray, Lord, that we might be encouraged that this and see that this is still true in our circumstances, in our situation and in our contemporary day as well. Amen. Well, Israel is about to be destroyed. And once Israel has been destroyed, Judah will be next. But why is this happening? Well, it could simply be a matter of conquest. Assyria is sweeping across the known world and defeating each nation it comes across. And it's simply a matter that Israel is next in line and Judah will follow. From this perspective, Israel and Judah are not particularly significant. They're two small nations They're being swept up under a much larger, more significant conquest. However, this conquest does have implications for the gods each of the nations serve. Each nation has its own god. And if two nations go to war, then it isn't just the nations that are fighting, but the two gods are pitted against one another. One nation inevitably will win and the God of that nation will be celebrated as the stronger of the two. The God of the defeated nation will be shamed since he wasn't able to protect his people and defeat their enemies. And so for now Assyria is the most powerful nation with the most impressive God and all the others are coming across as a little pathetic. On the surface, this appears to be an accurate description. But in reality, there's something quite different happening. But how else could these events be interpreted? If it isn't that one God is being defeated by another, How then do we explain why a God would allow his nation to be destroyed? Particularly since it reflects badly upon that God, a God that would give his nation over to destruction. Well, the way Isaiah understands what's happening places the emphasis not upon Assyria, but on Judah. The reason that all this is taking place the reason the nations have been destroyed before Israel and Judah, and the reason Israel and Judah are about to be attacked, is because the God of Israel has raised up the Assyrians as a means to punish his people for their betrayal and idolatry. 
what we begin to see is the God of Israel is taking part in this game of nations, but at quite a superior level. This is not a God that defends his nation when another nation attacks. He doesn't show his might by simply protecting his nation from the other nations. He isn't constrained by this idea that for him to be not mighty, his nation must never be defeated. Instead, in order to punish his people, he raises up any nation that he chooses. He brings them to his people to do precisely what he wishes them to do. Everything that Assyria is about to achieve, they do so to fulfil God's purpose of purifying his people. But Assyria never acknowledged this. As far as they're concerned, every nation they destroy, they do so because they are the mighty conqueror. So in chapter 10, verses 10 to 11, they go as far as to mock the God of Israel. They've already defeated Samaria. Since Jerusalem worships the same God as Israel, well, it'll be easy to defeat them. After all, they've already proved they can get the better of their God. But even through this, it's God that's biding his time. Assyria are doing his work. And he will allow them to continue to do his work, even though they're ignorant that that is what they're doing. But as soon as God's purpose has been fulfilled and Judah has been reduced to a remnant, God will then punish Assyria for its arrogance. And Assyria is described as a forest. But by the time God has finished with it, there'll be no trees left. And God's purpose in all of this is that his people will put their trust in him, not in Assyria. You'll remember last week we saw how King Ahaz shouldn't have made an alliance with Assyria. The only alliance he ever needed was an alliance with God. And that rings true with Isaiah's explanation here. You could make an alliance with Assyria, but if you do... All you do is make an alliance with a nation that ultimately belongs to God and ultimately does his bidding. And if God so wishes, he can turn Assyria against Israel to bring about the necessary purification. Or alternatively, Israel could place her confidence in the God who doesn't merely protect her from every other nation, but Every nation belongs to him. So with God on their side, well, no nation will ever be a threat to Israel as long as they keep their alliance with God. Interestingly, the imagery of Assyria as a forest that has been reduced to nothing then carries over to the imagery used of Judah. After all, they too have been punished for their sin. 
And in 11 verse 1, we see that all is left of Israel is a stump. It's called the stump of Jesse. From this stump, a shoot will come. From the shoot, a branch. And the branch shall bear fruit. Israel has had kings since the time of Saul. David and Solomon were good kings. But by this time in Israel's history, their reigns are only distant memories. Many of the kings that have followed have turned their people away from God. But now the remnant of Israel is promised a king who will be endowed with God's spirit. The spirit's presence upon the king means he will fear God. He will be wise and he will be powerful. His reign will be very different from what Israel has known. He'll be a king of justice. Not simply with the good intention of being righteous, but rather he will not have to depend on what he sees to make a judgment. Rather his knowledge will be exhaustive, so every decision he makes will be the right one. Then Isaiah uses a number of striking imageries to describe the safety and security that will be provided under the rule of this king. A child will lead the lion and calf, and a baby will play over the whole of a cobra. Now maybe we know too well this familiar passage to appreciate the shock of a baby playing near a cobra. Of course, any parent who allowed this would be considered negligent. And we would expect it only be in a matter of time, if the baby wasn't removed, that the cobra would strike and the baby would be dead. But it's, this is how the imagery makes its point. Under the rule of this king, a baby can sit next to a cobra because there is no death. Such is the safety and security under the rule of this king that all those things that were considered dangerous will never again bring harm. When Adam named the animals, he wasn't worried about the cobra. Well, of course he wasn't. There was no death. But after the fall, there was death. For a moment in the lion's den, Daniel, though surrounded by wild animals, is safe because of the presence of God's angels. And when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he too is with the wild animals while being ministered by angels. But probably more relevant to what we have in Isaiah 11 is how Jesus, throughout his ministry, provided a glimpse of what living in his kingdom would be like. Throughout his ministry, Jesus healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He caused the deaf to hear, the blind to see, and the lame to walk. He even raised some from the dead. And when the crowd were hungry, he provided with them with well, more food that they could eat. 
And before all this, at Jesus' baptism, he was filled with the Spirit. He is the shoots of Jesse. And Jesus' ministry provides all those that witnessed it and all those who read about it a vivid picture of what it's like to belong to his kingdom. But his ministry was only intended to be a brief glimpse of what was yet to be established. It confirmed that he had the power to bring about a kingdom where there would be a complete reprieve from suffering, that he would be able to bring an end to death. But it only demonstrated that he had the power to do it. It wouldn't actually become a reality until he himself died on the cross. And of course, this is how he would take away the sting of death. He would lay down his life. He would take the punishment for his people so that they would be kept from the second death. And so to use the same language we did earlier, to make an alliance with God, we must be reconciled with him. And the only way we can be reconciled to God is through the forgiveness that's been provided by his son, the root of Jesse. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we live in the the phase of redemptive history where the root of Jesse has come and that your kingdom has been established. And though we live still in the fallen world, we anticipate the time when we will be resurrected from the dead, when you'll give us resurrected bodies and that we will dwell with you in a place where the child can play over the whole of the cobra because there'll be no hurt or destroy in all your holy mountain. Amen. Any questions or comments in light of what we've been thinking about this morning? Yes, Nathan. Yeah, when when is the second recovery? Yeah, interestingly, so I looked this up in the commentary, fortunately. And um, I think the commentators seem to think the first recovery is talking about the Exodus. And then the second recovery is talking about... Um, I guess the return from exile. 
But the way you phrase the question, I don't think that kind of sits quite well, does it? Let me have just a quick look. So in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant, the remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, from Elam, from Shina, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. I guess an alternatively, alternative idea could be that this is eschatological, and so there could be that the initial time to recover the remnant was the f- after the first exile, and then the following one would be more thinking in terms of Jesus's gathering of people up that we get in the New Testament. But I don't know. Um, I think when I saw the comment in the uh, common commentary, I think I just accepted that and ran with that. But yeah, like I say, way, the way you phrased it, it makes me think there might be a little bit more going on there. I was intrigued by the language in that day. Yeah. Which we talked before about sort of that tends to have eschatological orientations and then coming back to verse 10. So that's, yeah, that sounds also. Yeah, I think Adrian's intends to talk a bit more about this sensual plenia at some point maybe so this idea that there are a couple of possible um, uh, fulfillments so you could have a fulfillment at the time but there's also can be a fulfillment to come and it would fit with that idea that the day of the Lord in one sense has arrived the gospel has gone out and that has brought his people, not Israelites as such, but his uh, sheep from the other pens, as it were, um, in. So it could be that. And often, yeah, there can be intentional ambiguity to fulfill a broader range. Any other questions? Yes, Victor. Yes. So, yeah, the reason, so if you go back to, it appears a couple of times, so if you go back to 11 verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So, I, yeah, the, the, the mistype comes from 11 verse 1, yeah, and then the root of Jesse is used in verse 10. Now, interestingly, People are surprised that Jesse's mentioned. Jesse is the father of David. And David uh, becomes the king of Israel. And then it's through David the promise is given in 2 Samuel 7. So people say, well, why didn't they say there was a shoot from the stump of David? Um, And I think Calvin and other commentators follow him and suggest, well, by now David is a monarch. You know, he's, he's very royal. It's a very, it's not a very humble beginning. 
So by going back to Jesse, it starts with a much more humble beginning, which feels fitting given the story of Jesus as we know it. So that's the, yeah, that's what's going on there. Time for one more.